Hello, I'm Pete Raby, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. Today, I am joined by Ollie France, the expedition leader and adventurer. Traveling to some of the world's wildest places, his adventures have taken him through deserts, jungles, mountains, and war-torn regions where he's faced spies, interrogators, minefields, and earthquakes. Nice small list there, Ollie. Today, we're going to discuss how leaders deal with the unexpected and go about leading in the most testing of times. Thanks for joining me today, Ollie. Been really looking forward to the conversation. I'd absolutely love to hear how this all began and why you do what you do. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for having me, Peter. Why do I do what I do? I think, like many of us, we go through life searching what it is we want to do. We, as often as children, we have no idea. I was definitely one of those children, but I was that kid in the classroom who would spend most of my time staring out the window, wanting to be out there rather than in that square box. And so that was the first trigger. And I think without knowing it, I had this sort of adventurous spirit. Had I thought that this was a career in the future, I never would have considered that I could make a career out of it. But I love being outdoors. I loved, you know, getting up to misdemeanors. I was always the one rallying my friends around, you know, pushing boundaries, going off into the woods, doing things we maybe shouldn't be doing. But that just became infectious for me. And and really, actually, you know, grew up in a small northern town in England, rugby league town, tough place to grow up. Every, you know, I was playing traditional sports, football, rugby, but at the age of 17, I went on this outward bound weekend, rock climb for the first time. And something about that one experience just synced with me and who I am and something clicked. And actually off that one weekend, I signed up to an outdoor leadership degree course. It is an actual degree. I've got the certificate. I can prove it. (laughs) And that really was the catalyst. That's where this adventure, this travel all began and, you know, began to make it into a career. It's so interesting to hear that perspective on things, Ollie, because one of the things that I felt for a long time is that the education is, is extremely well set up for people that happen to be academic. Now, whether or not you are, it sounds like you knew that your life and future was outside of that. Do you think it gets enough coverage in schools that there are people with different setups that need other things to occupy their future lives? Do you think that's empowered enough within schools at the moment? Uh, you know, it's something I've always felt. And although I did okay, I managed to get myself to university. I was never, you know, I, I was always in cruise control, really. I realized that in a school setting at the parents' evenings, it would always be, you can do more, just do it. And and But I wouldn't because I wanted to be outside. And so I think, yes, absolutely, when it comes to education, there's such a broad spectrum of creative, amazing young um, minds out there. And I think we've got to be careful generally not to channel them down these very specific routes and just give people the opportunity to to learn about their inner voice, to speak, to debate, to commu- learn how to communicate, to decision make, to learn how to take risks, all of these things which are so important in later life, which I think is just missed in education. I really wonder if they could, um, rather than the usual political routes that the education system could and should be run by people that have got a bit of a different life experiences sometimes, Ollie, but there's, mm. a, there's, there's a conversation for, for a different day. It'll be really interesting to hear, because we're going to talk about dealing with leadership in unexpected times. Give us a bit of context as to why you've ended up going to the places that you have done, the type of expeditions that you were running, why you were there in the first place. Was it all solo? Was it part of corporate expeditions? Was it part of individuals wanting to do things? Just a little bit of context as to the stuff we're going to talk about. Yeah. So for context, I've really covered a broad range of those things from the early days while I was at university, going off, doing big solo adventures, working overseas, working in America, Australia. And 
very quickly, actually, I wanted to push things. So I wanted to stretch my limits. I wanted to experience a bit of discomfort. I'd learned a bit of Arabic in university. So at age 19, I went and did a month in Beirut, living with a local family. And suddenly then I was in this place where there's there's bombs going off around the corner. I was watching a, 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 right, a guy with a rifle on a rooftop across the apartment block from me. And this sort of sparked something in me where growing up in a quiet northern town, suddenly the rush of the outside world was just electrifying. Since this, since these younger experiences, I've done lots and lots of solo expeditions all over the world. But really now my focus is guiding teams from all walks of life on big adventures and often to some of the world's most hostile places. So places like Iraq, Syria, Somalia, Yemen, Congo, and also sort of the more mainstream areas like Kilimanjaro, that sort of thing. And what really fascinates me now, actually, from from a younger age, being the, the landscapes, and the, the pictures is the people and it is the people who are my driving force and I've had the amazing luxury of meeting lots and lots of fascinating people from ex-CIA officers to terminal cancer patients to drag queens to Swiss billionaires to you know the most amazing array of people um, who have joined me on these adventures who really just all want one thing they want to have an adventure of their own they want to have a rich life experience they want to challenge themselves and they want to do it as part of a team and that's really where I step in. I love the fact that the, the vast majority of our listener base are, are people in very senior leadership positions. I don't think there'd be a single one of them that would say that people leadership and people interaction is not a fundamental part that's going to allow them to achieve their goals, but also the businesses and organizations they're part of to be able to achieve those. So I think there's a great alignment there. Yeah. The question I wanted to come back to, Ollie, which is so important, is why stretch limits? There are loads of people in life that live perfectly good, reasonable lives. Like they're, they're happy, right? And that's really the yeah. thing that matters. But why stretch the limits? Why was that something mm. that mattered to you? Well, it's a good point. And I think right now we're living in an era where comfort is very, very easy. Comfort is all around us. Our houses are perfectly decorated. They're heated to our taste. We can find comfortable chairs. We can get in our air-conditioned cars, drive to work in our nice heated office. You know, everything is is designed for comfort. But you've got to ask yourself, is that really serving us? Of course, you know, if, if you were to get a bit more philosophical, you understand why humans crave comfort, because throughout history, that has been what we've been seeking. We've been trying to survive. We've been trying to be comfortable. So why go back to being uncomfortable? Why go back to putting yourself in uncomfortable environments? Well, I believe that that's where the magic happens. I believe that that's where the good stuff is. I think that's where the growth is. And if we're not testing ourselves, if we're not exposing ourselves to unfamiliar, uncertain, unpredictable situations, are we really going to grow? Are we going to build our resilience? You know, we're not going to build our resilience sat at home on the couch watching television. It's not going to happen. Um, so we need to get out in the world, I think, and, and test ourselves. Mm. And, and you know what? Soon enough, the more we do that, the more those situations, whatever it is, starts to feel comfortable and starts to feel manageable and achievable for mm. us all. One of the areas I couldn't wait to speak to you about mm. is there's the list of things you've been through. Mm. A 6.9 magnitude earthquake, held at gunpoint, detained yeah. for five days, facing spies, interrogations, avalanches. Mm. You know, uh, a bit different from a quarterly dip in profitability or whatever the case may be compared yeah. to what a lot of people uh, might be thinking about, whatever the, whatever the case may be. But I would envisage, you know, I might be completely wrong with this, mm. but the way that you dealt when you're on your first expedition as a solo or whatever it may be, dealing with the first real sense of proper human-to-life danger experience. Yeah. 
compared to when you've done your 10th something of that magnitude yeah. of severity, mm. I'd imagine your emotional resilience for dealing with those dramatic changing circumstances must have got better. But that's just mm. an assumption. I'd be fascinated to hear yeah. your journey from when the first thing happened, ah, blind panic and you know shivers up and down your spine to, well, I've been in this a few times. Talk yes. me through that journey. That's that's a really interesting question. Absolutely. It has been an evolution. And, you know, I can think back to stages in my earlier days of traveling. And again, to touch on, on Lebanon, I remember walking around some dark streets. And this was a Beirut, you know, it's a, it's a dangerous city in parts uh, when I was traveling there. And, you know, I came across a bunch of guys who were fooling around with some handguns. And it was just me on the street. And I just had this this sort of almost panic, this panic or fear response. I'm sure we can we can touch on fear as well. And the more I traveled, the more I, ex- I experienced these situations. And there have been, been many, 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 many crazy situations and indeed situations where I have expected or felt like I, I might be killed. And I think the evolution that happens in your mind, and maybe I can talk about fear here, is you gradually learn what fear is and if we're experiencing something that that causes fear within us you know what is fear it's not something tangible really it's not something that we can hold in our hands fear is it is a trigger or it's um it's a message to our brains that that danger is imminent does that mean that we need to panic does that mean that we need to lose it no actually um it means that we need to take note of it it means that we need to be aware of it but from that, then we can build our response. And you know what? The vast majority of times, staying calm, staying collected, thinking about our possible options, how we're going to act, that is going to be the best course of action for dealing with those fearful situations. So um, that's meant that in, in more recent years when I have had a gun pulled on me in Iraq or I've been negotiating with you know, a sword-wielding tribesman in Ethiopia or caught in, the, uh, in an earthquake, as you say, actually... I've felt as calm as ever. And it's only through doing this multiple, multiple times, I think I've built this response where you look at the situation, is reacting with panic going to help you? No, it's not. Being calm, being collected, thinking about your options, trying to diffuse situations, that's going to help you through. And actually having that sort of level-headedness, I think especially as a leader, to, Mm. to touch on leadership as well, you know, I really think that emotion is infectious, it's contagious, And so if you as the leader are reacting to a situation like that with obvious panic, uh, with obvious stress, you know, guess what's going to happen to your team? You know, the exact same thing. Uh, Whereas if you're calm, if you're cool, if you're connected, if you act like this is something which happens every day, that's going to filter right through your team, calm the atmosphere, and then you can carry on and, and make a decision on what best to do. There's a brilliant book that I read on exactly this topic, which is the brain that effectively is split into halves between the red side of the brain that keeps you alive and the blue part of your brain, which is all about measured composure, education, decision-making based on data, et cetera, et cetera. They did a study of the All Blacks team that were world famously for 20 years, world number one, but never got near a World Cup. Mm -hmm. And when they broke it down into the analysis with the psychotherapist, they showed that at the most crunch moments, they made red part of the brain emotional Mm -hmm panic related decisions kick a ball out of touch instead yes. of keeping it etc cetera, etc cetera. and actually what they went then through with that team was the building of that emotional resilience to make sure that where they're you know in a heated rugby game when you've mm. got six foot ten monsters clattering you're pretty <laughs> pretty hard to stay cool right but yeah. the reality was 
How can they get out of that red part of the brain that says, ah, you're about to get smacked to getting smacked as part of the process and getting back to that blue educated part of the brain. Now, yeah. there'll be some people, you'd have met a lot of people in your the expeditions that you've run, Ollie. Mm. There are some people that are blessed with composure. They're just that way wired. They've Their red part of the brain is teeny tiny and they go yeah. straight into blue decision making. There are other people, and this is something that I've worked on enormously over the last few years. Yeah, I love being a, a good high energy, emotional person. But yeah. You're absolutely right. When it comes to leadership, and I think a lot of listeners listening in will go, oh, yeah, sometimes when I hear something which isn't great, mm. it's really tough to hide the emotions that I'm feeling. Yeah. How do you go about leading in an expedition? People that are naturally oh, much more reactive compared to people that are that much more mosed and compassionate. Because I'm, sure, yeah. uh, I'm sure you've seen a whole cross spectrum of humanity of people you know, that, that, that I've just described. I'd be interested yeah. to know how you go about managing that. That's really interesting. And of course, you, you are managing a team, as any leader knows, you're dealing with lots and lots of different personality types, as you say, some of whom are very reactive, some of whom are very calm, just as one sort of element of the personality. I think, you know, first of all, when I get a team together, when I sort of meet my team for the first time, it's about figuring out what their motivations are, what what reason are they there, you know, what are they doing on this trip? And you can't assume that you know what they're doing there. You know, I think to assume what your team is there for is is a big mistake that team uh, that leaders can make you know we how do we find out well we get to know them you know we ask those basic questions how are you you know what are you here what are you hope, hoping to get out of this experience and then you think about what you can do as a leader to get the best out of them and you know how you can sort of use them to to meet to reach your goals uh, but to come back to your question when you're in say a high stress situation you've got potentially people who are who are losing control a little bit or getting emotional and you're worried about the atmosphere within your team changing. And I think a lot about atmosphere and sort of looking at the atmosphere within the team. I think that's something we need to do constantly as, as leaders because we can influence it and we should always aim to influence the atmosphere in our team. I think personally, open open discussion and, and really stepping up as a leader in those moments is one of the most important things you can do. And that's where your sort of wisdom or experience as a leader can really diffuse a situation. So if you've got, say, some conflict within a team, you know, how you, what, what's, what's your best course of action? Are you best sitting, sitting back, letting it unfold? Well, you know, if you do that, you, you've no control over the outcome. So I think that's those moments for us to step up as leaders to sort of look at the situation, look at the conflict, lay out the bones of the situation, think about where we got here, where we're trying to get to if we're if we've got this shared goal and we are you know generally united is conflict going to serve us in this shared goal absolutely not we need to stick together in those moments it's never more critical to stick together in those moments and so it's just getting everybody back on the same page okay why are we here what are we trying to achieve let's focus in on that uh, and and then you can try and rally the team get them united and move forward Absolutely. I think there was two or three elements of that, actually, just to unpack it slightly. I hate that phrase, but I've just used it. <laughs> is, <laughs> is, uh, I couldn't agree more with the understanding of each individual because every single human being is wired so differently where their need comes from and, and, and why that, you know, why is the need in the first place is a really, really often skipped over skill yeah. and skipped over item. With, let's get on with the job. Let's take the time to understand what that individual looks like. We try and encourage all the time, get out of the office and go for a walk yeah. with your colleague. Where's that coming from? What drives that? Why does that matter? And yeah. half the time, the first answer will not be the answer that happens in an hour's time. Right? Absolutely. 
expectation management mm. amongst each individual is about as important as it gets. Because when yeah. you begin the working world, you've got no real idea about the the depths of emotional toll that it's going to be in a role like as it's extremely tough for the first 18 months at yep. least while you're learning your trade. And what you just said there is that actually it's the preempting and thinking one or two steps down the line mm. of what could happen and sharing that with the team. So when it does happen, a little bit like you say, you're beginning yes. an ex- expedition. If there's been no expectation management around, guys, here's a list of the things that could happen. Let's just talk a little bit about how we're going to react if any of those things do happen. Yeah. Is this, so when it does happen, it's not the blind panic and absolute pandemonium, but guys, yeah. we talked about this. We talked about how it's going to feel. Your pulse is going to go. This is going to go, all the rest of it. Yeah. How much is that a vital part of what you do? Because there are, as you say, when something that dramatic happens, it might be very easy for the whole group to just go, ah, whereas yes. the reality is if you've spoken to it about it and you've thought one or two steps ahead, surely the outcome when it happens of the unknown yeah. becomes that bit more manageable. Is that fair? Absolutely. And this is something critically important that I think about a lot. And this, for me, is the difference between reacting and anticipating and i separate these two things quite clearly when it comes to you know big big situations it's do we have a strategy in place in which case we can we can anticipate it and we can we we know how we're going to respond to it um, and i think as as leaders again you know with hopefully a bit of extra foresight with a bit of ex, extra, extra experience we can learn that to anticipate into anticipate certain situations rather than just react to them that's a really powerful tool how do we do that well actually by sitting down thinking about our goals the possible obstacles we might face in our way how we're going to deal with those eventualities what contingencies we might have where we can utilize our teams and actually verbalizing that to the team as we're going through the process. So, you know, guys, it's going to be it's going to be a tough day tomorrow. You know, where we we've got this uncertain thing which might well happen. If you if you leave it there, people might just go to bed with a bit of terror in the bones. But you think, okay, so what are we going to do if that happens? How are we going to deal with it? What steps are we going to take? You talk it through. You plan. You strategize. Uh, you sort of alleviate that stress for people. It's just the same. You know, th- thinking about you talking about your graduates coming in, they've got 18 months of you to say to them, it's going to be a really tough 18 months and, uh, you know, it's going to be very hard and end the conversation there. You know, they, they may may not be super interested in the job, but if, if you say, but I'm here, we've got an amazing leadership team, we can guide you through it, we want you to grow, we want you to develop, then suddenly it's a very different proposition, isn't it? It's a learning opportunity. It's an opportunity to push yourself out there uh, in a more comfortable, confident way. It also is so important, therefore, for that goal that you're aiming for, be it an expedition of the endpoint or someone's career about why they've joined a job yeah. to be a front and centre thing that's spoken about. You're here in these testing conditions, whatever the scenario, yeah. because the purpose was worth it. Yeah. Like well, my father said to me years ago, if something's truly worth having, like it's ever going to be easy. Mm. And I think just the expectation management around that, because sometimes – especially in the social media age, all yeah. people see in their celeb world is everything's sunshine and roses. It's just so, so far from the truth. And lots of the times, the Michael Jordan's probably the best example of the, the amount of shots he's had to miss to be able to yes. do what he's done. It's like, it's just a great analogy because if the most successful people have said, do you know how hard I to work to get there? It's the yeah. underspoken thing about, you know, how much failing or the Mandela quote, he's never lost, he's either won or he's learned. Yes. Brilliant. I love that. Because that's what it is. And that's kind of the, the, the ethos that, Businesses that want to truly empower their staff. I talked to them on day one and two. You're empowered to fail. Yes. 
because failing means learning. Yes. And as long as you've got an, an environment that, that that does that, hopefully you have a good chance of resilient emotional resilience being able to build throughout the process. So let's. Um, I'm looking forward to coming back mm. to some specifics on in relation mm-hmm. to your experiences. We've talked to and mentioned a few things, but what was the scenario that took you to your? This is the most testing mm. situation that I've been in, where I'm really having to dig the deepest here. It's hard to settle on one, but to give you, you know, what 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 is probably the best story there is I was traveling from Hong Kong to Istanbul. And this was off the back of I quit my job 2015, just to give you some context, thrown away my life in the corporate world, decided to get back on track with adventure and expeditions. Traveling from Hong Kong to Istanbul, big solo journey, four-month journey, climbing mountains in every country, and I arrived in Tajikistan, about to cross into Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan, for context, it was at that time a strictly authoritarian country, second only to North Korea in terms of the freedoms its people had. And so I knew crossing into this country that things were a little different (laughs) and I'd been warned. And so, you know, went, went over to the border, ready to cross the border. You know, this is a land border. So I left behind Tajikistan, walked over no man's land into Uzbekistan and was presented with the passport control. They stamped my passport. I thought, okay, great. I'm through the other side. I walked through the other side and there were three guys in military uniforms, nobody else around. This was late at night, you know, completely deserted this border post. And they said, okay, lay out your rucksack. We want to see your phone, your camera, your laptop. Handed those over. They started checking through the files, did a full check of my luggage, did a full body search. And ultimately, after an hour or so of searching, they found some cocodamol tablets in my um, first aid kit. Unbeknown to me at that time, cocodamol uh, is classed as an illegal narcotic in Uzbekistan. It contains codeine, which, which comes from heroin, and which makes it an illegal narcotic. So from that moment forward, I was uh, a drug trafficker in one of the world's strictest authoritarian countries. And they said, okay, come with us. And, you know, instantly I knew that the situation was completely out of my control. They led me off to an interrogation room, interrogated me for four hours until midnight. Uh, We're taking photos of me, you know, in front of these tablets and eventually presented me with some paperwork, all written in in, uh, Russian and said, okay, it's going to be best if you sign these papers. And, you know, by best, what do they mean? Who knows? And said, no way I'm signing these papers. What I want to do is phone the British Embassy in the morning. Uh, They'll hopefully help me get out of the situation. So I stayed the night at this border post, called the embassy the next morning. They said, you've got three minutes. That's your one phone call, and that's it. Phoned the British embassy, and it was a Friday, late March 2016. And they said, sorry, it's Good Friday. We'll be back open next Tuesday. Goodbye. Automatic message, and the phone was snatched away, and then I was back to square one, uh, completely on my own. And then it's, right, what do you do from here? And they drove me down, actually, to the Afghan border, to a city called Termez, uh, took me for blood, uh, blood samples, urine samples to see if I still had this so-called drug in my system. Put me under house arrest with a, with a guard on the room. And ultimately, this again was a situation where I had very, very little control over what was going to happen. You know, I, I could not control this situation. I was deep into it. And so it was about trying to regain those tiny slivers of control, those tiny elements that we can grasp of a situation to try and alter its course in our favor. And, you know, sometimes that's very, very hard. And to touch on 
just the last few years, I think we've all learned that there are many, many things that's going to happen to us which are outside of our control completely. But there's always something we can do. And my critical message really is situation, negative situations do not need to mean negative uh, outcomes. The critical element in that is our response to that negative situation. And we, that is something we can control. We can control our response to these negative situations. And so bit by bit in Uzbekistan, that's what I was trying to do. Ultimately, I was, I was, taken, um, I was taken to what turned out to be an XKGB compound. I was given an a ultimatum of it's either 30 days in jail or $500 fine. Best $500 I'd ever spent. But there was Easy. a catch. <laughs> I didn't have the cash with me um, and Visa and MasterCard unfortunately, are not accepted in Uzbekistan at the ATM. So that meant an awkward phone call home, Western Union transfer, eventually get hold of the cash. The local currency is worth very little. So I ended up walking into an XKGV compound with literally a bag full of Uzbek cash to pay my way out of prison. The story goes on, to be honest, but um, ultimately they wanted me to leave the country. And um, I decided I had better ideas because I was on this big journey and I was so devoted to it that I'd made friends with our interrogator. He got me a taxi to the local town. I had, went and climbed a mountain in Uzbekistan, had police spying on me. Yeah, ended up leaving the country, traveled 500 miles, changing taxis in every city, made it to Kazakhstan. I mean, it's a very long, crazy story, but <laughs> ultimately I made it out of there and uh, and survived the experience. And yeah, it remains, a, it remains a good story and definitely a good learning experience. That's a decent story, Ollie. Uh, <laughs> that's a decent yeah. one, and not, not not common for lots of the uh, lots of guests of Elden so far. I, I think one of the bits that I take from that enormously is uh, the befriending of the interrogator. Mm. Bizarrely, it's the what good can come of this situation, and you, you touched upon it there. And I think um, we spoke about it briefly before the recording began. I think it can be very easy for er- anyone in life to get bogged down into the nitty gritty money shy of their job, their current role, or things not going to plan. And it can be very easy for fear to start driving decisions and the outcomes. If you'd have just kept in a dark, negative place where everyone was against you, you know, could have ended up in the jail, could have ended up, certainly wouldn't have ended up in a, as good a situation after you, Mm. you, you you pay, you pay the fine and, and get out of there. It could have ended up really quite dark. Yeah. I guess it's kind of folded into the same question. The building of emotional resilience to be able to, say what positive positive things can I do in this tough situation is one thing. But really how people can stop fear driving their decisions would be fascinating to get your insight on because yeah. no doubt, you know, it's so relevant to the adventuring world as well as the corporate world. People can start making decisions based on our oh, fear yeah. rather than making it from a, oh, we're in this situation, but how are we going to get out of it? Talk us through what experiences you've seen and heard in, in, in that area. That's so true. And I think fear it's not to be dismissed. It can be useful. I think, as I've mentioned already, it's a useful signal to our brains. It's a useful reminder of where the danger is. Um, and so we should not ignore it. You know, can we eliminate fear? You know, maybe not. I don't think so personally. Uh, what we can do, though, is try and use it in our favor. And I think when it comes to decision making, it's all about trying to detach ourselves from that fear to look at it for what it is as a signal, as a warning, as an alarm bell and then acting accordingly. And that is easier said than done. I think the more we expose ourselves to difficult situations, uh, the better we will get at, at not making those fear-based decisions. Because for me, fear fear evokes this image of loss of control. 
loss of control generally isn't good decision making or doesn't lead to good decision making. Um, so I think we need to try our very best to detach ourselves from that fear and think about what you can control in those situations. And, you know, a phrase I like to use is it's about controlling the controllables. Mm. There's going to be many, many, many things that we cannot control. And in many senses, this idea of control is a bit of an illusion. Uh, we think we've got a lot of control in, in our lives in, in the modern world, but, you know, there's very little we can control. But that's what we need to focus on. It is those tiny micro decisions that we can control to gradually try and stack the odds in our favor. Sometimes those those decisions are going to be deeply unpleasant. They're not going to be fun, but that's going to be the course of action. Sometimes those decisions are going to be wrong, but the worst thing you can do in those moments is indecision. You know, you've got to make a decision. By indecision, you know, you get nowhere. So you need to make a decision. If that's wrong, you try another decision, you move forward with a new strategy, but you need to start making those small incremental steps Think as logically as you possibly can. Use that fear, but don't let it consume you. Easier said than done, but through practice, we, we, can, uh, we can learn to do that. You mentioned it right at the beginning, um, stretching the limits, about the learning coming from the times that the toughest or the most outside your comfort zone. You know, those, those are all very glam phrases in lots of ways mm. that not a lot of people would disagree with. But I'm fascinated to to hear the link as to why some of the, you know, a, a billionaire that wants to mm. go on a pretty scary out of their comfort zone expedition, why people do these things. Mm. Because, yeah, learning when it's toughest or most unique is interesting. But how do people go from running big corporations and growing, becoming highly successful to wanting to do an expedition where there is there's life threatening? What are some of the reasons that people from the, you know, if you're 21 and you've yeah. got a spirit of adventure, much, much easier to do it than when you've got a family or when yes. you're in a corporate world and making great steps. What benefits do people get from doing these kind of things, even when their life seemingly is going mm. really, really bloody well? You know, having interacted with many of these these people who've traveled with me, as I say, some of them are CEOs of successful companies or very wealthy. Um, not all of them, you know, come from all walks of life. But for sure, I think it comes down to that human element within that person. And, you know, maybe that person realizes that they can buy whatever they want, literally anything on earth, they, they, you know, they could buy it pretty much. What, what is very different, what is very different to a material good is those genuine, raw, rich life experiences, those experiences that take us out of what we are used to, that take us into a new situation, uh, that allow us to really test ourselves and to experience new cultures, incredible landscapes. It's tapping into those deep human elements that are within us all. And I think this thing of adventure, you know, this thing of exploration, why is this important to me? Why is it important to other people? I think it's in our DNA, quite frankly. I think that's what makes us human. Um, if we didn't have exploration in our system, would we have discovered the entire globe, populated the entire globe, learned about species, learned about space? Would we have done that if we weren't obsessed with exploration, even on, a, on the level of our careers? You know, would we try different careers, different avenues? Probably not. I think this notion of exploration is, is in our veins. Of course, what I do is a, is a very literal way of doing that. Uh, but for sure, what I've found, and I think this is increasing more recently, actually, is that there is a growing appetite for people to go and have their own genuine adventure, um, their own genuine life experience, 
uh, which, which quite frankly, it can never be taxed. It can never be stolen. It can never be taken from them. It's there within them. It helps them grow and evolve as a person. And it's really something unique. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely love that angle, Ollie. And it's, um, I'm, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people that go, cool, yeah, that's a lit a fire, so mm. to speak. I, I, I've, I've had a, one little weird experience to share, but I've, I've had the unfortunate position of seeing in the flesh both my father from cancer at 51 mm. and my grandfather pass away in front of me. Yeah. And there was something quite striking that hit me in those moments that made me think, how do you want to feel? When it's your time, and one of you know, the famous phrase of, uh, <laughs> there's only you know, two things certain in life, it's death and taxes, right? Yes, <laughs> uh, but, but, but the reality being that when you're there in that situation, what regret do you not want? Mm. What do you not want to go? I knew I should have done that all my life. That was, uh, and, and although it's a bit of a morbid <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> example, I think it's a similar thing where like, what are you, what are the things that you genuinely want to test about yourself? I've recently re- uh, yeah. read um, Finding Ultra from Rich Roll, okay, who, yes. who, you know, was living the usual life. And at 39 went, whoa, this is enough. And, 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 and he said, human beings really are only, when they think they're at their max, they're about 40%. Because doing ultras really shows me what mm. my max actually looks like. And I think yeah. there are some individuals, and often in a corporate world, yeah. these are high-end performing people Absolutely, that when they're allowed to tap into something that says, go on in, what are you going to do in this situation? Yeah. They love and they revel in that challenge, be it in the boardroom or um, out there facing what you face so far. So I totally get why it's a thing. And to yeah. be honest, um, Ollie, I'm going to going to have a little bit of thinking after this <laughs> as to what my next physical challenge should be. I told you about a, uh, an amateur half marathon, but let Sounds alone know what it could be after that. So uh, um, what do you think are the most common factors preventing people from pursuing those deep down rooted desires that they have as a human being? Well, for me, there is only one answer to that question, and that is ourselves. That is what what I truly believe. And let me give you a little anecdote here. So I was climbing this mountain in Kyrgyzstan. Again, this is one of these ex-Soviet countries, very mountainous, there on my own, middle of winter. I was up at 4,000 meters on a snowy ridge. A blizzard came in. I was sleeping there overnight. I wanted to go and continue up to a mountain the next day, miles and miles from anyone. And I was lying there and the temperature dropped to minus 15, minus 20. And I had no clothes left to put on. Uh, you know, this this was many years ago. I was woefully unprepared, and I I was just clinging onto the final grips of warmth. And I thought about it. I thought about all the elements here that were sort of stopping me from going onto the summit. I thought about the altitude, you know, which I was experiencing, the cold, the hunger, the snowstorm, all of these things which I thought were stopping me from getting to the top. And as I sort of lay there and reflected, and it was a you know, it was a deeply unpleasant experience, but I I reflected on all these things and suddenly occurred to me that the only real thing that was stopping me from going on and reaching the summit or, you know, reaching any goal, really, it is ourselves. I really believe that. Um, And I think we impose, unfortunately, limits on ourselves and we let society impose limits on us, you know, which which is equally, equally bad. Sometimes it's just about having that drive or seeing within ourselves that we have the ability to to push on through and to take on these ambitious challenges. Uh, I think more often than we like to think, success actually it comes from within. It is an internal it is an internal struggle. It is can we keep pushing? Can we keep going? Can we stay motivated? Nobody's going to do that for us a lot of the time. It's got to come from within. What does great leadership look like to you? So great leadership for me or what defines a great leader from 
an average leader. For me, an average leader is somebody who looks at their team and says, what can this team do for me? A great leader is someone who says, what can I do for my team? I think that's one of the critical distinctions. It's about looking at everybody within our team, thinking about what their assets are, thinking about what their motivations are, their personal goals, knowing about their personal life, their struggles, all those sorts of things, thinking about what we can do to get the best out of them, to rally them together. And really, it's only through getting the best out of our team that we are going to improve and excel as an organization and meet our big ambitious objectives. Uh, if we're using people as, as, as tools, you know, or as pawns on a chess, chessboard, that's not going to serve our purpose. That's not going to create a long-term, high-performing team. We need to tap into the humans within our team and really get the best out of them. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a common theme, actually. Your role as a leader is to serve to serve others and my daughters who are four six and eight years old ask a lot oh daddy what's your job what are you doing it's sort of just here to help others and i think yeah. ultimately that's hopefully you're going down the right lines if you think about it that way as yes. opposed to as it would have been in before like a some kind of ego trip about your job title it's a thankfully it's a much changed world and much spoken about the subject which are hopefully creates much better leaders across the entire community right yeah um now this is a question i was looking forward to mm-hmm. asking ollie because um you could go about 15 different ways on this mm-hmm. um we ask everyone, what's the best book, podcast, movie, or you, you'd recommend that you take in long-lasting learns from? Okay. One of each or... or um, do you know what? No, with just, with, just your, one, with, with your life experience, you can, <laughs> you, you can drop two or three and I've got no, no, no problem. Um, okay. Best book. You know, it's, it's, it's not super well-known, actually, but there's a book called 438 Days. And clues in the title, it's about a, a Mexican fisherman who was swept, swept out in a storm and he, was, and he was out battling the elements for 438 days. And that is one of the best, if you know, little, little well-known stories of survival, of human perseverance, of creativity. Um, it is, you know, it's really inspiring, actually, to, to read that. So if you're looking for something a bit, a bit different that's not necessarily a self-help book but will inspire you, that is, that is one I'd certainly recommend. Nice, yeah. It yeah. sounds very similar to one we were mentioning before about touching the void of yes. someone that with his, both his legs broken was kind of like, yeah. you're going to die. But just was like, no, I'm not. And just bit by bit, like breaking down the entire massive journey into the teeniest little chunks. I'm, uh, I'll yes. definitely check into 438. So thanks for covering that. Yeah. And I guess a um, final question, Ollie. If there was one learn you'd want our listeners to take away from the conversation, what, what would that one learn be? I'm going to use a quote here. So a favorite quote is, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. This comes from John Milton's Paradise Lost. And for me, that speaks about realizing that the situations we face are not predetermined. Everything is a matter of perspective and we have the power to control it. That is my big message here. And when it comes to any goal, any situation, we have the power to control our perspectives and to control our reaction to those situations. Love it. First time that um, we've certainly had something like that, Ollie. So um, as as I hoped with your perspective and what mm-hmm. you've done in life, it might be a, a different angle, and that certainly uh-huh. is. But I, I think that's a very, very thought-provoking end. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your leadership learns with us today. Um, I know that there'll be lots that would have resonated with listeners and they'll be taking away some valuable ideas and some thought-provoking content for sure thank you everyone for listening if you enjoyed the episode please give a five-star rating and share with others in your network thanks again ollie thanks peter really enjoyed the conversation 